Welcome to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, where we talk to change makers and innovators focused on upending systems not designed by or for them to create a more inclusive and equitable world. I'm your host, Sarah Chapman Becerra. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is one of my favorite people. She is vibrant and energizing, and that energy, it's contagious. Lola Adeyemo is an entrepreneur, scientist, speaker, and author. Her book, Thriving in Intersectionality, Immigrants, Belonging, and Corporate America, is out this fall. A little history. Lola and I both live in San Diego, but kept virtually running into each other over the course of about a year and a half, whether it was through the same networking group, speaking at the same event, or just peeking in on each other from afar on LinkedIn. When we finally met in real life for the first time and properly introduced ourselves, that was it. Our work and energies were too aligned. I had to keep her in my life. And she quickly became one of my entrepreneur water cooler friends. The friends at work you can easily vent to because they understand and also ask for advice without any hesitation. The first time I saw her speak about one of her areas of expertise, I was blown away. In this case, that area of expertise was about incorporating employee resource groups as a meaningful part of your organizational strategy. And her new ways of thinking about outcomes-driven community building stuck with me. In today's conversation, we spend some time discussing what she's learned about creating effective ERGs within organizations. And we talk about the history of ERGs, where they came from, how to be more strategic in an ERG launch strategy, and the importance of people strategy and succession planning into an ERG charter. You'll also hear what a great storyteller Lola is as she shares some of her personal experiences, including her journey moving to the U.S. from Nigeria for graduate school and then her transition into corporate America and what that was like. This episode is great for anyone looking to build an outcomes-driven community, groups of people who share a common concern and a common goal to create solutions, learning from each other as they go. I am glad you made it. Thanks for being here. Before we dive into our conversation, let me tell you a little bit about our trailblazing guest today. Lola Adeyemo is the founder of EQI Mindset, an employee resource group expert, author, and corporate speaker passionate about building inclusive workplaces, which as you know, is what we're all about. Love the work that you do, Lola. Lola leverages her prior experiences as a scientist and with different employee resource groups or ERGs to tell stories through speaking, designing, and facilitating impactful sessions in order to build inclusive communities at work. Lola is also currently working on her doctoral degree with a dissertation focused on strategic leadership, informal teams, and belonging at work. Her new book, releasing in October 2022 and called Thriving in Intersectionality, Immigrants, Belonging, and Corporate America, inspired her new nonprofit, Immigrants in Corporate Inc., where she centers the immigrant needs and perspectives to build belonging and thriving workplaces. As a career mom of three, Lola constantly works on thriving at home and work and advocates for policies that enable all individuals to balance 
every aspect of their identities and lives in order to advance. That is an important mouthful. I know I shared a lot and we're going to talk about a lot in this conversation, but I just wanna let that sit for a little while in terms of the work that you do, Lola. Thank you, I am beyond honored to have you as a guest on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be here. If you can't hear it from my voice, I'm doing a dance because I love this girl right here. Sarah, <laughs> I'm so honored that you have me on your podcast. Uh, thank you for being here. It's such a formal bio, but it's so important for me to share that. And I know I even sound buttoned up reading it. But the way that it lands with me is, Lola, I don't know how you do it all but the work you're doing is so important, not to mention raising humans, which we were talking about a little before this, and just the emotional complexity that that requires of us too. So your work is not light, and the things that you're doing and building in this world and creating more inclusive communities inside the workplace so people can thrive everywhere. Where did that come from? Let's start with a little bit about your story your journey from even childhood into where you are now. Where did that come from? I'm still unpacking where it came from because I feel like I have just begun to like step into my purpose and my why. Um, but I know um, I grew up in Nigeria, West Africa, and my dad was the first of nine kids. And he had this huge sense of responsibility and also growing up in a place like Nigeria where girls, you know, gender inequities is a little bit uh, more prevalent there. I had a really good relationship with my dad and I honestly didn't think there was anything I said I wanted to do and I couldn't do. So he made me believe like you can do whatever. You just have to figure out what it is you want to do. Um, right. So I didn't, I wasn't one of those kids that I would, I have huge dreams, like I want to do these. I just enjoyed each moment and tried to figure out what the next step will be. So, of course, my dad, he was a college professor. He got his master's and his doctorate in UK. So one of those dreams for me was I want to get a degree outside of the country. Like, I didn't know what country, <laughs> but I wanted to, you know, get an advanced degree outside. So... Started applying. I ended up in the U.S. in Texas for grad school. And the next goal was I want to get a job. And, of course, that wasn't all easy. But I would like to say, you know, after getting into the workplace, after getting settled, that uneasiness kind of set in to where, what, I'm, what do I really want to do? Because there's the stage where we're all just trying to get jobs and pay the bills, right? And then it's in the process of doing that that I started discovering what am I excited about? What am I passionate about? What keeps me up at night? And getting involved with employer resource groups, with committees at work was, it did a lot of that for me. It helped me find my own voice. It helped me find communities that uh, got me excited. It helped me find the spaces that I was passionate about and I also was in the position to see a lot of things that I didn't think were right. And I, I found out it was way easier for me to advocate for others 
than it was for myself, <laughs> which is probably everybody's story, um, especially as a woman, as a black woman, as an immigrant. Um, but yeah, so I knew I wanted to be part of the solution for some of the things that I observed within corporate America. And I've just kind of been following, taking steps in the direction. Who knows where I'll end up? <laughs> mm. Tell me a little bit more about what it was like. So you had your father as a role model to model leaving, to experience other cultures, other countries. And so when it came time for your own journey there, coming to the U.S., what was what were your original initial thoughts and, and cultural kind of awareness, awakenings that happened? Oh, gosh. <laughs> so honestly, I didn't think it really dawned on me that I had spent all of my life in this close-knit community and now I'm moving thousands of miles away. I think I was just, like I usually am, just focused on that goal, which is I want to go for grad school. Um, so I went to my elementary school, my secondary school, even my college were all within the same small town. So I was always like 30 minutes away from my house. I could come from my dorm room at college and come pack some food in the house. And my little sister would come to campus and grab my laundry and she would go do it and bring everything back, you know? So I was kind of comfortable, but then I got my first job outside of town. And that's when I started really applying to colleges. I was applying in the UK. I was applying in the US and yeah, when I got admitted and I made a decision to come to the U.S., I just said yes. And then I remembered I, I quit my job with two week, three weeks before school starts. And I traveled back to my home to say bye to my family. And then I came back <laughs> to Lagos in Nigeria to board a flight. So I was just very focused on my goal. But then when I got to University of Houston with a week before classes... I had some weird experience <laughs> um, with interactions in the grocery store and some of them really stood out for me. But I think that's when it really hit me like, wow, you're far away from home and mm. you're all by yourself. So it wasn't, it wasn't a fun process for a while. And then I was in college for about 16 months in Houston and then I moved to San Diego. So I lost that community again. So I would say it's been a very character building journey. <laughs> yes. That was a great way of putting it. Yes. Because wow, what it you talk about it as as this next right thing. I'm just I'm going after this is the goal and this is the next step to the goal. And then sometimes we're so focused there that we we wake up and realize, oh I did it and now I'm looking around, things are different. Right. And some things are probably enjoyable. And then some things, like you said, were prejudices that you didn't necessarily experience back home. And right. coming now, so moving out of college, moving from university, grad school into your corporate career journey, what was that transition like for you? Oh, my gosh. I think that was harder. That was harder than coming in and getting into grad school because coming into grad school, my apartment was walking distance from school. I had a campus job. My gym was on campus. So 
I would wake up early and just be on campus all day. And I was involved with student government. I was involved with Black Student Association. I was involved in the international student office. So it was like, I was just in this comfy cocoon that I built for myself again. And it was a very great experience. I really enjoyed it. But then coming into corporate America was very different. There's mm -hmm. nothing to cushion you. There's no support system that you had on campus, that I had on campus through the International Student Office. And so corporate America, I feel like there was, I was still naive in a lot of ways. And corporate America kind of helped me grow up, right? Like, okay, not everybody is really watching out for you. You know, you got to figure out what's happening yourself. You have to take whatever steps you want to take. You can't trust people, you know, all of these little, little things that would happen in meetings, in conferences, with tasks, and you get stabbed in the back and you have to find mentors. You know, I, I learned earlier on to find the right mentors, find the people. Um, it doesn't have to be a lot. It could be one person. It could be two people. I had to learn to rely on my one or two as opposed to assuming that everybody that you're working with is, is watching out for your interests. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hey, if you are enjoying the show, be sure you subscribe and join our community at trailblazingincolor.com where we share resources, connect you with other amazing trailblazers in our trailblazer circles and amplify our collective power. Hope we see you there. Okay, back to the show. It, it's very different than the meritocracy we're often told exists. It, once, you, once you go to work, you do a really great job and then people will notice your good job and then you keep yeah. moving up. And that works for a very specific type of person and, and not for everyone else. And it has to look differently in order for us to, and we have right. to know those, those secrets, those untold right cultural norms that right. especially if you're coming from college from never having been in this environment or, or worked right. in the corporate sector it's right. really hard to know what the rules are and right that was my culture culturally in nigeria there's the the respect that comes with age so again i talked about my dad being the first of nine i grew up as the first of six there's a lot of responsibility that comes with being older, even if it's by a year, you know, you don't call your older sibling by name. Even if it's just a, a year, you have to put a term of respect and you have to defer to somebody older than you. I had a short stint in the corporate workplace back in Nigeria before I moved to the U.S. I worked for um, Diageo, the brewing company, um, for about two years. And I remembered... It's a British company, so it was a little bit of difference from corporate America. But I remembered when I was asked to call everybody by first name. And I was like, this guy is old enough to be my dad. Almost all of them were old enough to be my dad. I can't call them by first name. And <laughs> the office admin, because I was working as part of a project, and they would laugh. But it really was challenging for me to call people that were my parents' age by name. But then when I got to campus, it was the same thing because I was a tutor and one of the students that we stayed in touch, she became a very good friend. She was like older than my mom and she, she's in college, 
working on her bachelor's and I'm tutoring her and she's treating me like a friend. It was it felt so weird. I'm like, yeah, like my mom. I feel like I should be like, you know, like bending down and listening to you. Um, so getting into the corporate workplace, that was first one of the first um, level of challenges. You expect people that are older than you and have a higher title to be right, to know better, to know the right thing. And then I had to learn that that's not always the case. The fact that somebody has a title or somebody is older in age doesn't mean they know more. doesn't mean you have to always listen. You know, I have to learn to speak up even with, with that kind of crowd. Mm. Yeah. And what was that process like for you? I know it, for none of us does it happen overnight where you realize something and then you're able to kind of speak truth to power and say, that's actually not okay. What was the process for you learning or teaching yourself how to speak up in those situations? It was hard. I, I actually never felt like I fully got into that space. Um, but one thing I know helped me is finding an ally in the room. You know, finding an ally in the room and just using that as a focus point, as a launch pad. But then, you know, that doesn't always work out because what I found myself doing is I tended to find somebody in the room that I use as a crutch. You know, then that comes the topic of you need to be able to trust the person. You need to be sure it's somebody that has your back. But I started doing that naturally, like look for somebody in the room that I can bond with and connect with, you know. And then, you know, before or after this meeting, I, I can make sure this person really gets it. Uh, but then you're assuming just maybe this person would help your voice be heard. But I've had cases where this one person that I had taken and put into that kind of position, actually took the ideas that I shared and presented it as our own. And, and this was a female. So for me, I was like, I literally told you that. Like, I literally told you that last night, you know. <laughs> and then you come in and you're like, oh, so I was thinking, here's my thought process. This person literally said this. This is my thought process. And she presented everything exactly the way I laid it out. And I'm like, huh. <laughs> so um, I learned to find allies, but also, you know, um, recognizing. I read a book a couple of years ago where the statement that stuck with me was, as a woman of color, as a minority, sometimes after surviving in corporate America means you have to be okay with your ideas getting presented by somebody else as long as you are just focused on that idea being implemented. So you have to kind of prioritize this idea being imp implemented over getting credit. Which is hard. It's so hard because it requires us to really take down our own ego and our own pride right. because right. it was our idea. And then this idea of justice, our, our work being stolen. And right. so that's a lot to navigate. And, right. and yeah, ultimately, sometimes it's the big, you have to look at the bigger picture and like, ultimately, yeah. what are we trying to accomplish? And is this going to get us closer to accomplishing it? All right, right. But over time, it really breaks you down. It does, it does. Um, especially working in the STEM field where it's always like being overshadowed a lot, right? It's usually male dominated, 
or white dominated. I don't always see a lot of people that look like me. So I'm, I'm learning. I'm on this journey. But at the same time, the environment makes it harder, right? Because it's difficult to find allies and, and to find people that truly care about helping you, you know, figure out what's going on, helping you learn. Everybody is, is just protecting their own interests. Everybody's trying to get ahead and you have to be okay with that as well. Like it's not your manager's fault that, you know, they do whatever they, they need to do. They also are protecting their interests. <laughs> so, yeah, if we can remember that and so leverage the relationships to get to that mutual, like moving forward, mutual momentum. Here's what's in it for you. Here's what's in it for me. Right. Let's see how we can collaborate. Yeah, I think one of the things that I also did that helped was I just focused on where I'm comfortable, which is learning. <laughs> I used to get liberal as you're always in school for something. I was like, well, at least I'm comfortable in a learning space. Like the first time I got assigned a project management role, actually the first time I got put in a project team, that was even before I became a project manager. That's when I found Project Management Institute. Because I'm like, I'm going to pay money and learn the right way to do this so that I can bring this into my day job. I'm not saying I'm an expert because I took that class, but I'm saying at least I will know more than I currently do. So I was always looking for certifications or courses that I can take because I love learning. The academic setting is kind of, okay, it's comfortable for me because all you have to do is get the grades and pass, right? <laughs> it's a space where I could kind of, you know, use as my support for a while. So I, I did a lot of that. I did a lot of do research. Um, when I got into supply chain, I, I started looking into APICS. I have a certification in supply chain professional. And I remember the first time I started working on that, this guy is like, oh, you have to have done, you know, supply chain for like at least 10 years to do this. It's like, I, I, I have the certification, but it took me a while. When I did it and I passed, it's like, what? How did you do it? But for me, it's like, that's easy for me. It's easier than doing the job. I'm not saying I'm better at the job because I took the course, but I'm saying I can learn more with the theoretical, um, with the book study knowledge that can help me maybe make sense of the theory of the applications. And that's really the best time to do it. So when you have that direct application, I took this certification and now I get to go do stuff with it. I heard someone say once, you pay to go faster. And I think that is also true because you, like you said, you need the theory, the frameworks, and then you can, once you know the rules, you can break them. Right, and I always use the example of driving a car. I was like, the first time I got my driver's license and I had to drive, I was scared to be at the wheel. I'm like, but getting a driver's license doesn't mean now you know how to drive. It just meant you read the book, you passed the exam, you took the basic test at the DMV. Now you have to practice. It's with practice, with using those driving skills that you get better. So that's the way I look at, you know, like certifications, courses. I know there's, you know, people with the school of thoughts that it doesn't help. It helps me. It doesn't mean I know everything, but it gives me a safe space to learn. And then I start applying. So how would you say that that connects to the work that you do now with ERGs and even with the book coming out, which I want to talk a lot more about? 
with ERGs, um, I think how that perspective is showing up with the work I do with ERGs is with the ERG leader development themselves, right? Because a lot of time, um, ERG leaders, of course, are, and members are coming into these with the mindset that I'm not a manager, I'm not a director, I'm not a leader. I just have passion for these. Is that understanding and helping them to have that understanding that it's okay. You know, that's why you are here because you have the passion. And now attending the program, the workshops that I'm putting together is one of those tools that you gain to learn to do your job. You know, and I always, um, I always stress it during my, my workshops. Like I'm not here to teach. We are here to learn together. Right. So I don't want people sitting with their hands folded, listening to me talk. I would share best practices, but we'll walk through it together because you know your organization, you know your ERG. What I'm trying to do is help you build a framework so that you can, you know, um, drive sustainable initiatives within your company. Yeah, exactly. So you're creating this, you're ultimately cultivating the thing that you love and works really well for you, but also for people in general, having a safe space to talk about it, to practice it, to mess up, make mistakes and be vulnerable, and then right. go out and take that learning and expand it, not right. only to employee resource groups within organizations, but you're also expanding it with cross-company collaborations. First, can we take a step back and just tell us a little bit more about what an ERG is and this idea of informal work groups, and then talk to us about how this community building and even outside of a, a single organization has shifted the, right. the impacts that ERGs are able to make now. Yeah, absolutely. So employee resource groups, and I, I use the term employee resource groups a lot. A lot of companies use different names. Um, business resource groups, BRG. Some people use uh, the term affinity group, and that might be used correctly or incorrectly a lot of times. Um, some people use acronyms like PODs or ROG, whatever the name is. It's basically groups within corporations. I, I, I always compare it to student groups, right? Like student groups on campus. And that's usually easier for people to picture it. it they're not unions, but they are groups of employees that come together. And the beauty of it is in the corporate world, as we just talked about, there's so much hierarchy. Right. There's the, you know, you're at this level, you're the manager, you're on the team. It's all um, very divided. And then there's the functional divide as well. Right. Is the scientist folks, the engineers and, oh, you know, the finance guys. And there's this division, horizontal division and vertical division. What employee resource group does is create spaces that crosses all of those existing divisions and brings employees together in a different way that has more impact on driving authenticity at work. Because the groups come together for, you know, like mainly the first employer groups uh, started because of black employees needing to come together. There were fewer black employees in the workplace. Uh, so, of course, that's why there's a lot more black ERGs. But that was how it all started. Uh, started with black affinity groups. And then as we moved towards uh, the affirmative action women, gender in the workplace, uh, we started having more 
women employee resource groups, not even like gender now. It's women specifically. So it was groups to bring black people together, groups to bring more women together and advance them. So very different focus, right? The, the focus on black people was the community. We want to build an affinity group where black employees can find people that look like them, where there can be a community. So it was focused on social events and just fun. And then when we talk about the women ERGs, it was focused on advancing women and work, right? Two very different things. But now under the umbrella of employee resource groups, we have way more. And we also have to talk about the differences because the affinity group is kind of like we're bringing together people that look like us so that we can feel safe and comfortable. Employee resource groups, you don't lose that feeling. What you're doing is you're broadening the definition to make sure that there's a resource piece of it, right? So you're trying to provide resources for members of that group. So if it's women, if it's Hispanic, whatever group you have is going beyond the people that are in there. Affinity group is focused only on the people that join. Employee resource group is thinking about the entire group. What can we do to support this group at work? So they're looking for initiatives, ways to provide resources. Whether or not you show up to my ARG meeting, if you are a woman and I have a woman ARG, we're thinking about programs that can support the female population at work. And then business resource group is more of a direct line of resource for the business. So I, I have an image that I use that usually shows affinity at the core. Business is kind of when you expand into employee resource group. And then business is the last layer. But you don't lose this. It's not like a vertical growth path. You don't lose the affinity field because you want to become an ERG. And you don't stop being an ERG so that you can become a business ERG. You just expand. And, and that's why, you know, ERGs is kind of like a, a growth spectrum. It's a long-term plan. It's not a one and done. You know, companies that are successful at it have a plan. And you don't try to do everything at once. You, you kind of give yourself two to three years and, and draw out something. That was such a helpful explanation of the difference. That's the best way I've heard it explains those differentiations. And I think it'll really help a lot of people to hear, especially the way you talk about it as being expansive versus this linear continuum where you start here, then you go to here. So with EQI Mindset, you do a lot of work at all of these different kind of expansionary stages. How do you engage with organizations that are looking to be more intentional with their ERG strategy? So when I think of EQI Mindset and what I offer, I think of the entire life cycle. So companies that I focus specifically on ERG, which means that ERGs, I, I see them as a part of your DEI strategy. So if you don't have a DEI strategy, that's a good place to start. And I, I work as part of a DEI firm where the conversation starts with the DEI team, right? You try to build your strategy. But most of the companies that bring me in, they already have the ERGs. Now, some of them might not have developed a fully formed DEI strategy, but that's where I start the conversations with them, that ERG is not your DEI. ERG supports your DEI. So part of why ERGs get burnt out is you turn them into your unpaid DEI team, unpaid and unsupported DEI team, right? So you have to make sure at the company level, 
the organization as a framework for what does DEI mean to us? Where Where is this journey taking us? And then what happens with the ERG is when I come in, I, I work primarily with companies that already have ERGs. And the starting point is usually each of the ERGs should have their own charter. And it doesn't have to be the same. Like the company can give a framework for the ERGs, but for example, the women ERG and the caregivers ERG, their mission is not the same most times, right? Like the women ERG, most of the companies that start the women ERG, they do have the women, they have the female population, but they have challenges with advancing women. So obviously the women ERG's focus will be professional development and that will be captured in their mission and their vision and that will guide the programs. But when you are looking at the caregiver's ERG, advancement is not going to be the starting point. Advancement might be a part of it, but accommodations for parents, what do we have in place? Policy changes, resources for managers to be more supportive of parents, right? So depending on the organization, I, I start from that, like how many ERGs do you have? And we have the conversations around, do you have a charter? So my workshop, part of my workshop, I, I provide all of that, like a charter template, uh, mission and vision. We spend time really diving into that to make sure that as an ERG, don't try to do more than you're supposed to do you know, really define what group you're representing and, and put pen to paper to capture your mission and vision. That way you're very focused and make sure it's aligned to the overall company DEI, right? If you're focused on these, how does it plug into the company DEI plan? Because that's how you can get buy-in and, and support. So the charter piece of it, you're saying, make sure you have a mission, make sure you have a vision, any other pieces that are components of the charter as you see best practices? Right. I, I think it's also the, the people strategy. So mm. I talk about the people strategy is who are your members? Who are the leaders? What's your criteria for leadership? What's your term? Right. Uh, what's your process for selecting new leaders? And then who are your sponsors? So defining what each, because your roles are different. Right, as a member, as an ERG leader, as an ERG executive sponsor, what they are doing is very different. And then there's ERG oversight manager. That's sort of like what some companies are creating that role now to have somebody who oversees the entire ERG. That person is who primarily needs to have DEI certification, DEI training, because it's not about what group they belong to. They are supporting all of the ERGs. So they have to be able and committed to inclusion from the perspective of each of those um, groups, right? So all of that needs to be documented. All of that needs to be readily available for anybody that steps in to join the ERG. It will be, where do we stand with these? What's our process for these? And if I want to join here, what are my roles? So the roles and responsibilities of all the members of the ERGs, and then um, templates around running inclusive meetings you know, and information around um, meeting times. Are we talking about meeting every month as a planning meeting? All of that, um, because if you look at an organization, people leave, people switch roles, 
people can choose to step away from their ERG role if life happens and they have a lot going on, right? But how are we preparing uh, for succession? How are we preparing to sustain these efforts? That's where the charter and the ERG toolkits comes in. You should have all the basic information around when we started this, why did we start it, what do we need? Um, so the, the, the people, roles and responsibilities, the process to get a new ERG started, if there's any approval uh, process, uh, pitch process to submit a request for an ERG, um, all of that should be captured in the ERG toolkit. Wow, that's so different from how many organizations have traditionally thought about ERGs. And it's really the same process we do with any business vertical. Right? Uh, yeah. The strategy, what's the process, what's the leadership, what's the structure. And I've seen so many, and I've been a part of some too, that uh, ERGs that fizzle out because we're meeting every month, but we don't know where we're going. Right. We don't know what our resources are. We don't know how to get anything through the bureaucracy. We're just kind of throwing stuff at nothing. We're, we're trying to throw out ideas out and they're just not, not based in reality because we don't know reality and we don't right. have anyone advocating. That was my experience, but I know that several others go through burnout because if we don't know where we're going, we can't possibly have any wins or right. no quick wins to feel like we're having impact and momentum. And so right. I love the way that you approach this because it really is the horizontal of organizations. This infuses at every right. level of the organization in every department of the organization because it touches. And it really is about creating community right. and that cross-pollination of ideas. Right. And, and so, yeah, so the, the, the need for what I do, again, it was very difficult for me to kind of focus on ERGs initially because everybody wanted to broaden everything to DEI. And I had to get really clear that I focus on ERG because there's a bigger need here, right? I want the companies to have their DEI strategy. I'm not the DEI experts that is going to help you build out a DEI strategic plan. What I would do is support you. If you have that plan in place, then I come in for the ERG piece, right? So what's your DEI plan as a company? What's your plan to launch the ERG? So I can work on that. I can work with your ERGs. The workshops is usually across the company. So if um, I do it across different time zones. So if you have your ERG leader, and that's also something that is um, unique and value-add because most of the ERGs, uh, within different companies, everybody's kind of doing their own thing. There's not an opportunity to collaborate, um, but there's been a rise in appreciation for virtual space, virtual workshops now. And so that there's so much value in bringing ERGs together, different regions of the company, and sharing best practices and getting aligned with some of the things that we do. And then, so there's the ERG, there's the workshop piece, there's the speaking piece. So, my entry point for most of these conversations is usually with the speaking because I want to help people understand what ERGs are. So depending on my audience, if I'm talking to a, at an event where the company leadership is, the way I'm speaking to them is different from when I'm talking to the ERG leaders. So there's, there's a difference in where is your organization and what is needed right now. 
And, and then there's the ERG community that I facilitate. So it's over a year now. And it's a, it's a cross-company ERG. That's what I call it. It's an ERG with multiple companies. <laughs> and so we have um, a group on LinkedIn called Community of Global Employer Resource Groups. And they are ERG members and leaders and DEI leaders across companies. And, you know, there are a couple of entrepreneurs, but the call is all about ERGs. So we have a group. People share best practices and ask questions, but we also have a monthly call. And it's all about asking questions, learning best practices, getting program ideas, and then building a community, right? We have uh, mixer-style breakout rooms where people get to meet each other and learn about what you're doing at your company, where you are on your ERG journey. And I know that was a community that I needed when I was leading ERG. It was so isolating. Um, so... You know, from start to successfully operating your ERGs to communities to support your existing ERG, it's, it's really important that, um, yeah, it's, we understand that ERGs is not one and done. It's not something you just start and then you put on the shelf. There's a lot of work to keep it going. Oh, yeah. And I'm hearing this through line for your whole career, Lola, is if you don't see something, you create it. If you don't see that it exists, <laughs> you go out and build it. I don't know. <laughs> because it's hard. <laughs> it's very hard. It's happening. But when you have some trailblazing friends who always will tell you in your ears to go for it, they don't tell you how hard it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the that's secret. And... Uh, I would imagine a lot of those feelings came up when you were writing a whole book. So let's talk about the book. Because as you were talking about all of these things, and I didn't see it, so I created it. That's the immediate next thing I obviously thought of. I didn't see a book like this. I didn't see anything covering this topic. The title is Thriving in Intersectionality, Immigrants, Belonging, and Corporate America. So I know that your journey has been a journey. So tell us about the process of writing this book and what it's yeah, about. Yeah, so the book is like, I always like to get myself into trouble, right? I don't see something I want to start it and I don't think about all the work that will be involved. So as I'm, you know, getting into DEI, getting into my role, my company, one of the things I've had to really lean into is my identity as an immigrant, right? Even when I joined Employee Resource Group, it was Black Employee Resource Group, Women Employee Resource Group, and it's all these pockets where I don't really feel like I get everything, but that's all that is available. So I can put myself into that bucket. And, you know, there's just all of these buckets that people kept expecting you to be in, especially as I got into DEI and with 2020 happening, everybody assumes I'm a black in America experience expert and I'm not because I didn't grow up here. So I'm a learner in that space as well, right? When it comes to black and racism in America, I just want to sit there and learn. I just want to consume knowledge. But people come to me expecting all of this expertise and there's so much pressure. And so for me, the immigrant experience, and I found out, you know, like going through corporate America, I really connected a lot with other immigrants. It didn't matter if they're from Nigeria or from Africa. The fact that you're an immigrant, we had something in common. And I didn't hear that perspective enough when we're talking about DEI and all of these buckets. You know, it's like, who is talking about immigrants that are in corporate? 
we hear talks about immigrants, but it's usually with the legal conversations and visa conversations. And I, I felt like that always assumes that every immigrant is underqualified, that every immigrant is looking for a minimum wage job. And so there was this sandwich of people that were missing their voices. And so we're talking about immigration issues and then we're talking about corporate America and, and diversity, equity, inclusion. And for me, I wanted to focus on, I wanted to really drill deeper into that perspective of an immigrant who is in corporate America. How can we make sure we're capturing that voice and that experience? So I thought it was going to be a doctoral research when I started. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm just going to, you know, research these and find out. And then when I found out with my program, I'm done with classes now. I'm working on my dissertation. And they're like, well, that doesn't really fit into the kind of program. You know, they had all these rigid terms around what the dissertation was allowed to be. And then I talked to this uh, program, this book writing program, and they said, oh, that's a book idea because you get to exploit and put it in your own words. And that's how I started writing books because I started interviewing different immigrants and I did a lot of interviews. I started writing my own stories. I started uh, interviewing a lot of immigrants. I started taking time to just write my own stories and dig into my belonging and my background. A lot of the stories were drawn from my experiences, but I also didn't want it to be just my voice because that just sounds like I'm writing a memoir. You know, I wanted to be more of, is this experience truly valid? Is it just me? And so I interviewed a lot of people. And I remember at the end of December, I had all these interviews and I was so stuck. I was going to call it quits because I was like, there's so much, so many stories. I don't know what I'm doing. How do I turn this into something useful? And I pretty much did it like a research. I had to go back to listening to all of the interviews and start extracting what is the one word or two words from this person's conversation. So I started putting two, three words. And then at the end, I was able to look at all the words and figure out what are the categories emerging, right? What, what am I seeing? What am I presenting? And that's how I ended up with three categories. The first one is section one was an identity, right? How do people define us? How we define ourselves? All of these buckets in, in corporate America and intersectionality itself, where everybody is really unique. Everybody has a mix of different things. So immigrants included, right? You have whatever immigrant means to you is not the same that it means to me because I immigrated as an adult. Some people were brought in. Some people don't have family back in their, you know, their own countries, right? Like different experiences when it comes to immigrants. And then the second section has to do with getting in. So the, the, the legal barriers. Uh, the legal handicap for an immigrant in the corporate workplace, right? Nobody really talks about how hard it is to get a sponsored visa. You know, we just see everybody at work and we assume we have the same, you know, apply for that job. Well, if you're on work visa, you can apply for every role. It has to be tied to whatever was on your work visa, you know, so a lot of people don't know that. And then the third section is where I went into more practical sections of Okay, we're talking about corporate America. So talk about leadership, for example. Talk about communication. How is being an immigrant, how is he impacting how I show up? How is he showing up as barriers in my workplace? And, and so that's what the book is about. And it's a lot of stories in the book because it was also, it's step one for me was I, wanna, I want people to open up the lens through which they view diversity 
And that's why the word intersectionality was very important to me to be there. I'm not bringing this book and saying, you read it and you'll be an expert. I'm bringing this book to say, you read this and your lens gets broader. You are understanding a little more about immigrant perspective as a representation of what it means to have multiple intersections. You know, it could be anybody else that is not an immigrant, but also has some underrepresentation at work. So you talked about the story gathering process and then bringing it into these three core themes. I love it so much, not only from the perspective I would imagine many immigrants women will see themselves in this work, not specific to the nuances of the story, but in the universality of how difficult it is and all that it takes, the tenacity that it takes to keep showing up. And then moving into what does it look like to be an accomplice, to be an ally and say, hey, I I see you. By reading this book, it's going to turn into I see you in a way I haven't before. And that is why I'm so excited for it to come out because I think it's so important always and especially right now when we're so divided right? because we don't understand difference. Right. We can even accept it if we're aware of it and we can adapt to it. But if we don't even know it exists. Exactly. Exactly. One of the people that I had asked to review my book before publishing, get that feedback. And this person is a, a DEI expert. And they said, well, it wasn't what I was expecting. I, I think I expected more thought leadership, more guidance, telling us what to do. But it just sounds like you're telling us all the story. I was like, thank you. That's actually great feedback because it's, it's the first step. It's the reason why now I started my nonprofit because it started with the awareness. For me, the book was about awareness. The book is about something that people don't talk about. I find books on immigration. I find books on DEI. But nobody is talking about the fact that being an immigrant is unique in itself. Your challenges are unique. You're, you know, you, you're talking about your country culture and American culture and then the corporate culture. And you're trying to mix everything up together, right? So the book for me was more about awareness, was about making people rethink the way we present diversity in the workplace, right? And And then the next step will be resources for this group of people. The next step will be helping organizations start employee resource groups for immigrants or for multicultural uh, groups. So I see some companies already starting immigrant ERG. Some companies call it cultural ERG. Um, but it also helps organizations to rethink the way you present ERGs. Depending on your population, you might not need to have a black ERG and a women ERG. Think about intersectionality. Think about the fact that no one person fits nicely into one of these groups. And you don't have to make them pick. You can put the groups in a way where you recognize the fact that we're still all a unique combination. And I think for anyone in a leadership position, officially or unofficially, really requires that you be a student, as you have been, Lola, a student of the human experience. And really the only way to do that is through the power of storytelling. And so I'm so excited for October. I can't wait. Tell us where we can find your book and follow your journey. So my book will be available on Amazon. 
the middle of September. So the ebook will be out middle of September and it will be on sale for 99 cents <laughs> before October 4. October 4 is when the ad copy and the soft copy will be out on Amazon. And my website will be live www.immigrantsincorporates.org and that will have all the information about the book, about the programs and events and resources that I'm pulling together as well. And then uh, the talks and workshops that I'll be launching in fall around that topic as well. Perfect. We'll share that too. Thank you, Lola. Thank we you. end every episode with a few quick takes and a little bit of advice. So first question to round us out from this fabulous interview. I've learned so much and I know so many people who listen will expand in a multitude of ways. So thank you. Who trailblazed the path for you? Who has been one or two of your greatest influencers or inspirations? I mean, that's got to have been obvious from our conversation. My dad is <laughs> one of my heroes. He, he mentored me when I didn't even know what the word meant. And he was in academia. I was interested in corporate. And he would find me what I needed. When I first expressed to him that I wasn't interested in going into medicine, which was his initial plan was to be a doctor, <laughs> he found me a mentor, somebody who lived in our neighborhood, who worked at a big corporation and would take me over to his house and have me sit down and talk to them. And then I saw him mentor other people. I saw him lead with the human perspective. He would resolve issues by listening to people, right? Whether you're younger than him or older than him, he saw you as a human and he, he wanted you to always have a voice. So a lot of the things that I observed him doing, I found myself leaning into it now. So in a country where, you know, fathers and daughters are not necessarily the best of friends, my dad was a mentor and influencer for me. That's amazing. And you honor him so well in the work that you do and the way you show up every single day in terms of amplifying your own voice or using it for good. And we didn't even say in the bio, you sit on a board. Mom deserves its own paragraph. And then you <laughs> volunteer your time, sit on the board for Growth Inc. You do so much. What's one thing you're really excited about right now? The future? I'm nervous and excited. I am nervited. <laughs> but, you know, my book project, my nonprofit is kind of taking over the next two, three months, but also building out my support for ERGs because that's still my primary business. That's still my primary passion. Um, so I'm excited about all of the things. I just launched my podcast, The Immigrants in Corporate. And I am launching a new one around ERGs in January. And that one will really be new, also feeling a need to hear more from ERG leaders and members. Because I hear people talk to ERG a lot, but I don't hear from the actual ERG members a lot. So I'm excited at all the things lined up, uh, looking forward to what can we do to keep making an impact. Blazing trails. You are blazing so many trails, Lola. And I can't wait to share your story with many, many more people. Thank you for being on the show today. I appreciate you. Can I just fangirl over you a little bit and just say, <laughs> you are a trailblazer yourself. And I'm really honored that you invite me to be here because I know you've been doing a lot of amazing work for a long time, 
for a very long time. So thank you for blazing trails yourself. I am so lucky to have you in my orbit. Thank you for being on the Trailblazing in Color podcast, Lola. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Trailblazing in Color podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to hit subscribe for future episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at, at trailblazingincolor and at trailblazingincolor.com slash podcast. The Trailblazing in Color podcast is created and executive produced by me, Sarah Chapman Becerra. The Trailblazing in Color podcast season one production team includes Alicia Archer and the podcast bestie team, led by Angie M. Jordan and supported by Gene Credit and Sarah Decker. Our theme song was composed by Troy Chapman. Thanks, Dad. Oh,